tag-teaming on this, and we've looked at some things that you might not have thought about that are idols in our life. The first week, we looked at the idol of worry and how sometimes worry can take the place of God in our lives. Last week, we looked at power. And this week, it might surprise you a bit to hear that the message that's going to be on love is in the context of a counterfeit God. And it's pretty counterintuitive to think that, God, that love would be considered an idol. And in this series, what we've done is we've defined love as something that could take the place of God, a place that He should have in our lives, and it's something that we rest our hopes for happiness in, or perhaps maybe our identity. It gets entwined in that. An idol is something that can have an obsessive quality to it, and we can consider ourselves to be hopeless without it. The Bible says that anything that becomes so central in our lives or anything that becomes so essential to our life that if we would lose it, we would feel like life was hardly worth living, then that has the possibility of becoming for us an idol. And what's hard to understand is this, that the Bible speaks so much about love in such glowing terms that, that in reality love could be the sneakiest idol of all. Our hearts can take really good things sometimes, and they can make them into ultimate things. Because what our world has done is exaggerated this natural human longing for love to an astounding degree. I mean, think back when we were teenagers. Perhaps you dated, uh, these are all made up examples, uh, maybe you dated someone and, and when you weren't with them, you were thinking about ways that you could express your love to them. I remember my freshman year of college, my first girlfriend was Linda Johnson. And I'd wake up in the morning, I'd shower and shave and spray under both pits. And then I would run up to her dorm and walk down to breakfast. We'd eat breakfast together. I'd take her to her class. I'd stand in the back of the classroom to the last possible minute. And then I would run to my class. If you saw my notes my freshman year of college, there would be Linda Johnson's name written in script and block letters. And I would write notes to her in that class. And then I'd run to, to meet at the end of class to walk her to her next class. And I'd hand her the note so she could read it. And then uh, I'd run to my class. And this went on all morning until we went to lunch. And then I'd go down to practice. And she'd wait up at dinner for me. And we were usually the last couple out of the dining room. I don't know if any of you were in one of those colleges where they had a guy who'd come out and say, all trays in, please. <laughs> they were talking about us. And then we'd go to the library, and she'd study, and I'd read Sports Illustrated. And then uh, we'd go out to the, to the Jolly Tiger, which was a little restaurant down on Milpas, and, and have a piece of pie, and then we'd take her back to her dorm. And then it was about a five-minute walk down to my dorm, and I'd get there, and I'd pick up the telephone, and I'd say, hi, how are you? <laughs> she'd say, fine. Yeah. And you learn at a very young age that love has this capacity to have an obsessive nature, and it can take the place of, as an idol. And sometimes we get fooled and we think that, that love is only noble when in reality it has the potential to become an idol that puts a barrier between us and God. And the truth is that the Bible talks about the inevitability of, of idols in our lives. And knocking down those idols isn't just a one-time event. I was thinking about this in terms of bowling, you know. That darn reset button keeps putting them back up. And we keep knocking down those idols and then they come back up again. And so this is a lifelong process of eliminating these idols in our lives. And maybe what spiritual maturity means that over time 
we deepen our ability to recognize those idols for what they are in our lives, and then hopefully we deepen our ability to stop surrendering to them. So this morning, I'd like to look at four different kinds of love that I think we're sometimes prone to make into idols. And with, here's, here's my hope. My dad told me years ago the job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted. <laughs> And so I want you to know this morning that you will squirm more at this message than any message I've ever preached here. I hope it will annoy you. I hope it will stick with you this week. I hope that it will make you a little miserable. And I hope it will make you consider the possibility that you may have elevated love to an idol in your life. Okay, here's the first love gone wrong in our day (laughs) idol, and that's romance. And perhaps never before in our culture has love held such a mythic promise of fulfillment. If you turn on the TV, shampoo holds out that promise. The closer he gets, the better you look, you know. And so if only, you know, we, li- we live uh, with a certain product or something that, that, that what we would want to have. Now, I, I thought about this. Uh, because I have been a groomsman in so many different weddings when I was single, and whenever I put on a tuck, somebody would say to me, when are you going to get married? And I think the results of what romance has done in our culture has made single people feel sidelined. The inference is, what's the matter with you? And singers from Frank Sinatra to Diddy have sung the virtues of romantic love. And so in an attempt to cover some of those musical bases, I want to give you a few. First of all is Maroon 5. Now, I wouldn't have a clue who Maroon 5 is, except my daughters watch The Voice and they love Adam Levine. So here's one of the lines from his songs. I treated you bad, baby. I strung you along. I don't know how I got so tangled up. And then we go to Kenny Rogers, if for you country western song, song fans, and you know what country western music is, you get your wife back, your dog back, your truck back, everything, you know, uh, when you play it backwards. But uh, here's what Kenny Rogers sings, all I ever need is you. Give me a reason to build my world around you. And for those of you who are Mariah Carey fans, if you only live for me the way I live for you, because all I've ever wanted is you. And then you have the immortal words of Elvis, I have everything as long as I have you. And it's interesting, Scripture has a number of times when they're great characters of the Bible who kind of get neck deep in the quicksand of romantic love. For those of you who grew up in the church, you remember the flannel graph of Samson and the story of his great strength. But there's another theme that runs through the life of Samson, and and it really has to do with this dysfunctional romantic love. In Judges chapter 14, in the second verse, when he came of age, one of the first things he said to his parents was, I have seen a Philistine woman. And this was a woman who didn't share any of his religious followings with God. It was a woman of a different culture that was very barbaric. And his response to his parents was, now get her for me as my wife. And this impulsive, demanding, driven love overtook his senses. And if you think the dysfunction was only in his side, after he married the woman a few verses later, it says, Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't love me because you haven't told me the answer to the riddle. 
And it goes on to say in the same passage that she cried for seven days. And I can tell you when I read that, I feel a lot better about my relationship. <laughs> but, but there is a hysteria, a manipulation, a bargaining she brought. It was to counter his impulsive, demanding kind of romantic love. In Judges chapter 16, he falls in love with another woman by the name of Delilah. And in between those two women is a prostitute, but I don't have time to get into that today. But her immediate response when she knew Samson loved her was to try to lure him. And she added deceit into her bag of dysfunctions. And it says, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. And anybody who's been in a romantic relationship where nagging has been a part of it, I can tell you it is possible in romantic love to get so blinded to it that you get into it before you realize how unhealthy it has become and how preoccupied until you realize it doesn't hold out the promise that you hope for. Now there's another kind of love gone wrong and we can put that on a pedestal and this is a lot harder to talk about. And it might surprise you that it's possible for you to make the love of your child an idol. Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which we've been using as the overarching framework for this series, about a woman in his church who fell into this trap. For a number of years, she didn't know if she'd be able to have children. And then God blessed her with three lovely children. But Keller writes that she had such an overpowering drive to give her children a perfect life that it made her almost impossible to actually enjoy them. And very quickly, her whole life became so wrapped up in her children and her overprotectedness and her fears and her anxiety and her need to control every detail of their lives began to choke her. And Keller writes this, it's not so much that she loved her children too much, but rather that she loved God too little in relationship to them. And that her desire for her children to be successful and happy was actually selfish and really about her need to feel worthwhile and valuable. And this is a hard one to talk about because those of us who have children, there is nobody in our lives that we wouldn't think, I'd give up my life for them to be happy and successful. But it's easy to invest in our children in order to get a level of joy and fulfillment from them that is ultimately found in God. And the ironic thing is that no child can bear the burden of that kind of love. So how do we hold our children with open hands rather than clenched fists and trust God and not fear failure without any promise of what the outcome is going to be? That's the question. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we pick up the story of a priest by the name of Eli. And he was training a young boy by the name of Samuel to be a priest in the temple. But he also had two sons who were also serving with him. And the Bible says in verse 12 that his sons were wicked men and had no regard for the Lord. And when people would bring their sacrifices to the temple, what these boys would do is they would take them and they would eat them and use them and then give the leftovers back to be sacrificed. In addition to that, it says they would have sex with the women who were serving in the temple And then the Bible says Eli, who had heard many times about everything his sons were doing, but it wasn't until he was old enough that he finally mustered up enough courage to say something to them. And in verse 23, he said to them, why do you do such things? His sons, however, say in verse 25, did not listen to their father's rebuke. And here's a line that just really convicted me. 
God says to Eli, why do you honor your sons more than me? And we must be willing to put God first, to trust God with our children by letting them fail, and to find our peace not in them, but in God's love. And Kathy and I can tell you that this is a lot easier said than done. There's a third love that that can take the form of an idol, and that's approval. Keller writes in his book, if your idol is power, you'll be willing to give up approval to get it. But if your idol is approval, you'll be willing to give up your power to get it. An approval addiction is a love idol that places other people's opinion of you on a pedestal. And you will find yourself striving to do almost anything that will guarantee that you get a good opinion from other people about you. And we never look into the face of the one who we should be pleasing. In fact, Galatians chapter 2 has a great illustration of this. Paul writes about his good friend and fellow apostle Peter. And in verse 11, he says, Peter was clearly in the wrong. And then he says, here's what's going on. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. This is Peter. But when the men from James arrived who were Jewish, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And that was the Jewish people. And what Paul says Peter was doing is he was posturing himself with one group against another, trying to gain the attention and approval of one group. And then when he saw the other group coming, what he did is he distanced himself from that group, paying attention to the other group, all in an effort to get approval. Now, I don't know about you, but here's true confession. I have found myself in this trap again and again, caring so much, projecting, predicting, wondering what other people think, that all of my energy is going into these things rather than asking, am I doing things that God would approve of? And by the way, I think it takes a whole lifetime to figure out what this means. You know that phrase, serving God only? That's a mindless cliche (laughs) until we really start to tear down these idols in our life. Okay, the last category is a little surprising as well. And this one is when we make perfection an idol. And really what this happens is it turns into love avoidance. Uh, Those who avoid entanglements of love out of the search for the perfect person. They're just as guilty as making love an idol as those who have multiple unhealthy relationships. In my former church, uh, there was a woman, probably in her early 30s, who had been through a painful first marriage. And understandably, she had gone into that protection mode. And then when she started to come out of it, she began to date this guy in her church. But she was a little wary of committing herself to him. They came for some premarital counseling, and she said, you know, after the bad experience of my first marriage, I just want to make absolutely sure that if I get married again, there will be no surprises. (laughs) I tried not to laugh on the outside. (laughs) But on the inside, I thought to myself, if you don't want any surprises, get a cat. (laughs) Don't get married. Marriage may be one of the most wonderful relationships in your life, but it also is a graduate school for facing what is wrong with yourself and growing. When I taught at Northwestern College years ago, back in the 80s, 
I had a student that I, I just loved him. He played on the soccer team that I coached there, and, and he was charming, enjoyable around. He was very charismatic. We used to meet uh, about once a week just in kind of a mentoring role and, and doing a little Bible study and stuff like that. And this guy dated lots of girls <laughs> only to discover that he would find within three or four dates a major flaw in every one of those girls, and it always became a deal-breaker to him. Our search for the perfect person is completely understandable, I think, because we are made in the image of a perfect God, and I think we long for perfection. But it's completely misguided because it's a reflection of our own misunderstanding about who we are in our brokenness and our imperfection. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 9, one of the first criticisms that Jesus received from the religious leaders was that he was a friend of sinners. In fact, in chapter 9, starting at verse 9, it said, Jesus got up and he went to the home of Matthew, the tax collector, to have dinner. And by the way, those, you'll remember in those days, tax collectors were like three or four levels before the scum of the earth, or below the scum of the earth. And then that was in the minds of Jewish people. And it says that he got to Matthew's house. Not only were there tax collectors there, but there were more sinners who came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And the next two verses are fascinating. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, remember these are the religious leaders of the day, they saw what was going on. They asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, they didn't ask Jesus. And I love this next verse. On hearing this, Jesus said, Obviously, he's been eavesdropping just enough on their conversation of what was meant for him, but not directed towards him. And he said to those religious leaders who asked the question, is it not the healthy who need a doctor? Or it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he said to these teachers and students of the Torah, these are people who had memorized whole portions of the Old Testament. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. 1 Corinthians 13, does anybody know what it's called? The love chapter. It talks about the primacy of love. It doesn't say love is picky, love is critical, love is superior, love is judgmental of other people. And Freds, I want to tell you, there isn't a perfect love. Not in romance. Not in your children not in the approval of other people, and not in perfection. And walking down those roads will eventually become dead ends until you realize the futility of looking for an ultimate love in any of those places. And perhaps the good news about this is it takes us back to our need to knock down our idols and to recognize that the search for a perfect love can only be, end up in the presence of God. And so our disenchantment over time with idols, I think, actually gives us an opportunity to escape that gravitational pull to these idols and to find our way back to God. And that's what I hope this series will do. Knock some of these idols down to bring us back to God. And this will cause, I think, a surrendering and a deepening of our faith. You see, we put love on a pedestal. But God put love on a cross. There's a Hebrew word, and I wish, I wish, I wish I kept up on Hebrew after I took it, but I didn't. But one word I remember is hesed, but it was spelled C-H-E-S-E-D. And it meant unfailing love. 
And it was only used in the Bible to refer to God. And it speaks of the love that we're longing for, but we can only find in the face of our loving God. And when we put God in his rightful place, I think it frees us up to love others in their rightful place and not to make them an idol. So here's how we're going to close today. We're going to just sit quietly with these four words and consider where God might be speaking to your heart and maybe he wants to whisper you about something that's become an idol in your life. And I'm not sure we know completely what would happen in our life or in the life of our church if we were open to what God would do in our lives when we let go of these idols that we all struggle with and we put him in the place that he deserves. Would you pray with me? And as we're bowed in prayer, when I'm done praying, we're just going to take about two or three minutes just of of silence to consider these things. And then the ushers will come and uh, we'll have our closing song. Heavenly Father, we come to this place every week to be reminded about how great your love is.